Trump arraigned and surging. Plus, Finland joins NATO. We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined, as always, by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Noah Rothman, and the notorious M.B.D. Michael Brendan Doherty. You are, of course, listening to a National View podcast. Our sponsor of this episode is Ball and Branch Sheets. More about them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So, MBD, we are recording around 10 o'clock here on Tuesday morning. An epic, nay, historic day. Donald Trump arrived yesterday in New York, flew up the Trump jet wall-to-wall coverage. All cable networks covered the plane heading to and landing in New York. There'll be similar wall-to-wall coverage today. I think the main action is around 2 o'clock or so, but we actually should see the indictment, I believe, as well sometime today. Over 30 counts. This is apparently MBD, a Kinko's indictment, where they're charging him per piece of paper for every one of these business records. Apparently, what do you make of it? Uh, it is a circus. I mean, the, you know, the the media had already had their spots taped off. I think on Sunday night, um, and I, I think it's soaking up a ton of resources from NYPD and the Secret Service. Um, and yeah, I think what people, I, I mean, in some ways, this is the kickoff of the the real kickoff of the 2024 campaign. Right? Mm-hmm. Like this, this, this is the announcement. This is the, yeah. Like Trump's, <laughs> Trump's announcement was a bit of a dud at Mar-a-Lago, but this is the, this is the real yeah. announcement. His statement in the hallway uh, of the Manhattan courthouse this afternoon, was supposedly he's going to make will be his real announcement. And, um, you know, uh, this is something that uh, has been devoutly wished for by, progressive America is Donald Trump in handcuffs or at least restrained by the law and uh, facing a judge at some point in the future. Yeah. The walls, the walls have finally closed. The walls are are closing this afternoon. Right. (laughs) And so, um, so, so it begins. I mean, we haven't seen the charges. It's a bizarre legal theory, um, uh, you know, trying to inflate, improper business expenses into a felony. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's a media event really. And, and so, um, you know, I think so far, almost all the commentary on the right and even on the left has been, Oh, watch, you know, Republicans are just going to rally to Trump's defense rally. And we have seen that we've seen a jump up in the polls over the weekend for Donald Trump. We've seen the argument, you know, him make the argument I said he was going to make last week, which is they're coming after, not me, they're, they're coming after me to get after you, right? Like, mm-hmm. and yeah, you're, you're I, not safe. If they're doing this to me, you're not safe. And not only that, they're doing that to me to prevent you from being represented in your government. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And fundamentally, I actually have some time for that. I know that's a, it's the populist argument, um, that has a, um, an ugly dimension too, where people over identify with their leader. Um, but there's a little bit of truth to it and, uh, he, he's going to ride that. However, I still think, as I said last week, that this legal mi- miasma hurts him so much among independents and independent voters, even the ones he won in 2016, and I think it could have unpredictable mm-hmm. effects on conservatives too, to see him if they if the mugshot comes out or. Um, so apparently, there at least according to Michael Iskoff, there's not going to be a, a mugshot. No, no cuffs. No, no mugshot. But the court sketches, whatever you know, the whole mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, I think there'll be still photographers. Okay. So so Noah, I had a flashback just speaking of the the coverage of the plane to 2015, 2016. I remember um, Mitt Romney made this this uh, really harsh anti-Trump speech 
And we were waiting for Trump's response you know, that afternoon or the next day or whatever it was. And I was sitting at a bar. And it was one of these bars that has a bunch of TVs, different stations. And just every single one was a Trump podium, just just an empty podium, just waiting for him, but with the, the, the word Trump on it. And it may have been a website or a phone number or something. And it's just priceless. It's priceless free media. And, and we're right back in that world. And, and the media, you know, it's hate coverage, but they love the hate coverage. Yeah, I wrote, uh, so I'm taking over for this last couple of days for them, for Jim Garrity on the jolt, which, by the way, he does a fantastic job of synth- synthesizing a lot of information that comes at you very quickly and trying to mimic what he does has given me a new appreciation for his level of expertise. Here, here. Um, and yeah, what you're saying, what you're seeing is a reprise of the 2016 strategy. And what I wrote in today's jolt is that this is clearly an unspoken conspiracy of interests aligned between these otherwise adversarial parties. MAGA thinks this is good for them. Democrats think this is good for them. Media is giving them the OJ treatment. They clearly believe this is good for them. Everybody's interests are served by this, except you mm-hmm. and the vast majority of voters who want to see this guy exit the political scene as fast as possible. Um. It, in 2016, you, there might you could be forgiven, perhaps, for thinking that, you know, giving this guy, as the the saturation coverage he got, was an adversarial strategy. You give the the American people a full ugly look at the incivility, at the chaos, at the disarray, and that might have a deleterious effect on his standing. There's no excuse today for thinking that, and I can't imagine anybody does. They understand what the effect of saturation coverage of uh, Donald Trump is on the Republican electorate. It's good for him. Everybody knows it. Mm -hmm. Republicans are being played like a fiddle uh, by this institution, national press, that they seem to, that they say they despise, but are consistently led by the nose into the conclusions that the press prefers. Um, Michael made a pretty good point about populism and the degree to which when populist figures find themselves in this condition, that it, adva- it advantages them, it advances their political arguments. But there's something to be said for the degree to which in American history so many populist figures have found themselves on the wrong side of the law. It's a feature of the movement, mm-hmm. not necessarily a bug, and it makes a lot of sense if you convince yourself that the rules simply don't apply to the other side. Therefore, we have to abandon our strict observance of the rules. This is yeah. a detriment to ourselves. If the system is rigged, why, why should you Why should we play? That? And then they mm-hmm. find out, well, the rules do apply to them because they end up on the wrong side of a jail cell. Mm-hmm. It, is a, it, is a, it is a bizarre thing that they convince themselves of. It does them very few favors in the long term. It advances individual political prospects in the short term to the detriment of the movement they supposedly represent. But can can I just devil's advocate that for just one second, though? I mean, we also convince ourselves on the other side, though, that you're right. Well, everyone has been saying for weeks, this legal theory is a huge stretch. It's a it's a a total reach. I mean, we haven't seen the indictment yet, but the theory doesn't hold up. There's huge questions about standing, whether, you know, New York can even. um up this to a felony based on the idea of a federal campaign offense. You know, there's all this idea that like what Alvin Bragg is doing is, 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 rich. is lawless, mm-hmm. but Trump has to comply with the law. So like we are, you know, there is a sense in which, you know, you, you actually have to explain to Trump supporters why the rules don't seem to apply to Alvin Bragg, but the rules, we have to apply the rules strictly to Donald Trump. Well, can, can I respond? Uh, to no, that no, no, no. You oh, should. Sure, re- you sure. should respond to that. I'm invited. I'm not. I'm not making that argument myself. But I'm saying yeah. like that's out there. Well, I think what everybody agrees on, even in, in this room, and I think just generally across the right, is that Bragg's prosecutorial strategy is bizarre and novel and would never have been applied to any other figure. There's unanim- unanimity around that. The allegations against him? I don't think anybody's even disputing the allegations against him. He did it. Right. <laughs> and he's and he did it, and he probably did it in the in the special counsel's investigation into the documents that he repossessed on Mar-a-Lago property. Apparently there's new evidence there that suggests he's on tape saying, you know, move these boxes here. Donald Trump himself. Likewise, I don't, I don't know what to expect out of District Attorney Fannie Willis's investigation in Fulton County, Georgia, but there seems to be a lot of there there too. The underlying offenses, very few Republicans are arguing against. It's the 
uh, tortured prosecutorial strategy that they're applying in order to pursue the law mm -hmm. that's the problem. It's not necessarily the law itself. Yeah, we'll, we'll have obviously much more time to talk about the documents case, but I, I was struck in the, the bombshell report about uh, the special counsel looking at obstruction. W one of the items that might have constituted obstruction was Trump asking lawyers and advisors if there was any way he could keep the documents. And uh, this, is, this is a problem I have with when these cases get to obstruction, they, they become kind of a, a snake eating its own tail. But Charlie... Uh, on on the merits of this, uh, uh, first of all, you know Trump was extorted, right? Um, you, you, I was looking last night at cases of uh, extortion where prostitutes or, or strippers are arrested, and there's usually some aggravating factor. You know, they uh, there's a tape and they threaten to to make that public, or you know they're harassing phone calls, and and this this was not that. I mean, Stormy went, went with a lawyer, and and Trump made it into kind of a, a legit a legit deal. Um, but it was at the end, at the beginning, it was basically an ex extortionate demand that Stormy uh, was making. And then, you know, if he just paid it out of his own pocket, someone, a lawyer yesterday was saying, if you just weren't so damn cheap, you know, all he had to do was pay it out of his own pocket and, we, and there'd be nothing. But it was from the Trump organization. And then there's this, this matter of accounting. But uh, a, a week or two into the real intense period here, what do you think of, of the merits of the case? I don't think the case is likely to survive because I think it is pretextual and tortured and almost certainly suffers from an insurmountable statute of limitations problem. I think what you just that's said... On, that's on the misdemeanor? Yeah. I just think that what you said about Stormy Daniels extorting him is interesting. Not because I have any sympathy for Trump, who did what he has been accused of and cheated on his wife to whom he had made a promise but because this is the sort of malum prohibitum case which could have gone either way mm -hmm. and that in and of itself should tell you something about the nature of the charges and the nature of the offense for those yeah, who I don't know that, I, I think in a, a big new york times report about this, there was a reference, I, I, going back, trying to find it, but to Cy Vance's office actually looking into an extortion case against Stormy Daniels. Right. So for Great those group. who don't know that phrase, malum prohibitum, there has been since, I believe, the Roman era, a distinction drawn in law between those things that are illegal because they're illegal, for example, mm -hmm. not paying your taxes, and those things that are illegal because at a gut level we all instinctively understand that they're wrong. For example, murder. Now, you do need to have mal and prohibitum rules on the books. But this is a case that could have gone either way, is highly technical, and that was dropped by the same office by Alvin Bragg's predecessor on the grounds that prosecutorial discretion thresholds had not been met. I think that's important to point out. I think that's an interesting point you make. This could have gone the other way. If Stormy Daniels were a hated figure and were the front runner for the Republican nomination, I suppose we'll have to wait until 2028 for that one. Maybe this would have been resolved in the opposite direction. My problem here, as so often, is that the debate over this with a few exceptions, and I will grant the New York Times and NPR some credit here, this entire debate has been treated as if it is a sub-debate on the pro-Trump or anti-Trump question. And it's not. This is a particular indictment with particular facts and particular laws and rules and canons surrounding it. The question here is not, do you like Donald Trump? It's not, do you dislike Donald Trump? But as so much, so often in our politics, it seems that anyone who backs this or opposes this is accused of having ulterior motives. There is nothing intrinsically wrong with bringing a case against Donald Trump. And it may well be the case that subsequent cases that are brought against Donald Trump are worthwhile. And that some of the people who have thrown cold water on this one end up saying, you know what, that one actually should stick. Not that it's criminal, but I thought the case that was brought against Donald Trump by Congress after 
his attempted coup uh, should have been fulfilled. But this one is weak. And we talked about this last week. This one is weak. And the political incentives here for everyone, including Trump, who's going to fundraise off of this and inexplicably become more popular within the Republican Party as a result of this, are obvious. It's it's an indictment of our current political moment as much as anything else. So, MBD, ask a question to you. Donald Trump will be convicted of uh, this this uh, offense in uh, a jury trial whenever it happens. No. No. I, I'm deferring to Andy McCarthy's logic here that you only need one. And out of these 34, which Michael Isikoff says are, are felony counts, and to the idea that you can't get a single conviction out of a Manhattan jury, uh, strikes me as not something I'm willing to bet on. So, so what? So, so yes, at least one yes. conviction. He will, he will be convicted on at least one count. Charlie Cook. I don't think so. I'm not even sure it's going to get that far. And if it does get that far, I think it will be overturned on appeal. Although I suppose that would still count as a conviction for your question. So I'm going to say no. Uh, I, th- I think there'll be a, at least one juror who's not willing to go along with this. There, there are a lot of holes in it, and I, I have uh, tr- trust in juries, ultimately, and I think they'll reach the right decision here. With that, let's hear from our sponsor this episode, Ball and Branch Sheets. Charlie. Well, if you too want to wake up feeling rested and refreshed with the softest, most luxurious sheets from Ball and Branch, as I do every single day, then do we have a deal for you. Ball and Branch is the bedding expert in the United States. They make the highest quality sheets with incredible craftsmanship. And each sheet set is slow made for an unmatched softness with 100% traceable organic cotton that gets softer with every wash and we have the signature hem sheets which are a bestseller for a reason they feel buttery to the touch they're super breathable pretty important in florida so they're perfect for both cooler and warmer weather they're loved by millions of sleepers they're so luxurious they're loved by four u.s presidents that's up from three u.s presidents when i first started reading this ad and they have over ten thousand raving reviews uh, you're probably thinking how do i get hold of some ball and branch sheets and how do i get some money off those ball and branch sheets well the answer is fairly obvious you go to ballandbranch.com that's b-o-l-l-a-n-d branch.com and as part of their spring sale you can get 20 percent off your order by using promo code editors 15 at ballandbranch.com some exclusions apply see site for details so, Noah, second episode last week, we were talking about Trump's polling, exit question, how high it would go. MBD and Charlie said 60. I said 65. Wherever the number is, you know, there was a lot of talk first part of this year about what Trump's floor is. We're going to find out what his ceiling is. So there's a YouGov poll that had it 57, head-to-head, Trump at 57. Last week, there's a new Reuters poll out. I just saw it this morning, has Trump up to 48. And DeSantis, I, I can see why Trump's going up, but why is DeSantis going down? This, this Reuters poll had him at 30 just last month, now down to 19. Uh, the, the terrible thought I have, and uh, really, I got to resist this because it's, it's still early and we, we got to wait for this to, to wash out at least somewhat, is that um, Trump could be the, the Al Gore of this race and DeSantis the Bill Bradley. Oh, God, that's that's horrifying brings me back to senior year of high school (laughs) in new jersey by the way so we had a rooting interest um yeah so i came across this survey um from really reliable pollsters at saint anselm college in new hampshire where there have been some real green shoots for desantis over the winter um found that trump is surging to a significant lead uh 42 percent over desantis is 29 percent in a really key early primary state I'm kind of dismissive of national polls, save for the fact that they indicate the national mood. Mm -hmm. Um, But national polling, head-to-head horse race polling, tells one story. 
And that is that Trump is enjoying a bump and consolidation around Republicans, which we expected. I don't think anybody thought that wasn't going to occur, um, even as just an expression of your frustration with the circumstances that he's enduring right now and your expression of support for him. But really, if you have, if you look at any of the other polling besides horse race polling, I, I, heard, I think I heard you, Rich, on the other episode um, last week say, you know, you really kind of have to believe in, in unseen forces to think that he's not going to pull this off by the end of this year, secure the nomination, or by the summer of next year, secure the nomination. And I don't know, because, you know, when you dive into some of the details around particularly his travails here, it doesn't, doesn't entirely square with that. You had um, ABC News Ipsos, Ipsos polling yesterday found that about 37%, nearly one in four Republicans said either the charges against him are valid or just don't have an opinion on the matter, which I kind of find hard to believe given the saturation level of coverage of this in, in right-leaning press over the last month. It's been four weeks almost now. Um, Likewise, you know, you have your Quinnipiac survey and NPR PBS Marist survey, all of them saying you have around one in five Republicans who are just not on board with any of this. A minority, significantly small minority compared to the majority of Republican voters. But I don't know if they're geographically distributed perfectly across the country to a degree where you're only going to get 50 or 20 percent of Republicans registering dissatisfaction with all of this. The early primary states have a, there's a different dynamic. And there's a lot of game left to play. What you have to see, eventually, are Republicans making the case against Donald Trump in electoral terms. They're not now. They're afraid of his voters. They want his voters. And they think that securing his voters means behaving like Trump and, and apologizing for Trump and doing everything that you can get from Trump, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, in the event that we, if we see a primary campaign appear in earnest, and I'm not sure we will. And there's, a, there's some indications that you'll have some also-rans who are really in, interested in running against Trump on his vulnerabilities. But Ron DeSantis has not made any indication yet that he's willing to run on his vulnerabilities with these, with the, the only exception being that he was one of the few Republicans willing to state the allegations against him outright. A lot of people have talked about the, you know, the prosecutorial strategy and how, how uh, you know, uh, beset he is by all these forces that are arrayed against him and therefore arrayed against you, but almost no one has articulated the charges against him. Brenda Santis did and then backed off of it. I, if we see more of that, I, I don't know if it won't tap into this vein of apprehension with the prospect of elevating Donald Trump again to the, to the nomination, but we haven't seen that yet from Ron DeSantis in earnest. I, I think we might, but we haven't seen it yet. So another notable thing about that New Hampshire poll, I'm making up the numbers, but as you said, Trump, Trump was in the, the 40s, whatever it was, and DeSantis was at 29. And Governor Sununu, who's not in, but a lot of people think he's going to get in, was at 15. So you can just see there how you'll, you can split up the, non, uh, the non-Trump vote uh, easily in such a way to give him a plurality victory. So Charlie, DeSantis did give a speech the other day, might have been in Pennsylvania, uh, somewhere, uh, I clipped it, uh, took a clip and put it on the corner where he made this electability case and he made it in, in terms that you agree with. You know what? Y- you want to win and you want to do do things, you got to win elections. And elections are a game where you win, you, you get to, to go into power and actually do things and affect your agenda. If you don't, you go home. And that's that's clearly going to be a, a, a big theme of his against against Trump. And this, you know, this indictment and subsequent indictments may ultimately help him make that case. This is one reason among many that Trump's denial that he lost the 2020 election is so dastardly. The main reason is that he was the president of the United States and he tried to subvert the Constitution to keep himself in power. The secondary reason is that it corrupts and warps the process by which people choose candidates for the next election. In any normal circumstance, DeSantis, or anyone else for that matter, who is seeking the nomination in 2024, would be able to start a discussion about electability and point out that the former president running lost. In 1968, a plausible criticism of Richard Nixon 
would have been that he lost. It's not the case that former presidents tend to run or former candidates tend to run. Mitt Romney didn't, John McCain didn't, George H.W. Bush didn't, and so on. Trump is. And it is entirely reasonable for the other candidates to say, Donald, you lost. You had a shot and you lost. You've been the nominee twice, you won one, you lost one. The problem is, Trump says to this, no, I didn't. I didn't lose. I actually won. And the fact that you're accusing me of losing suggests that you are unfit (laughs) to be the nominee. You're too weak. This is not just a lie. This is a dreadful perversion of our system of government and of our primary process. If somebody had said to George H.W. Bush, had he run again in 1996, with all due respect, George, you did lose the last election you ran in. And he had said, no, I didn't. He'd have been carted off to the loony bin. And of course, he'd never have said it. This is why I worry about this. It's not that the electability argument isn't profound. It is. I just wrote up for the corner a poll, albeit within the confines of Florida, showing some good signs for DeSantis. DeSantis is more popular in Florida than he was when he won his landslide re-election by four points. He's more popular than Donald Trump in Florida by 20 points. He's more popular than Joe Biden in Florida by 24 points. He is winning independence in Florida, at least his favorable, unfavorable approval rating is marked out by a 21-point gap. Now, that's Florida. Some people say Florida is completely different to the rest of the country. I'm not sure it's that different. But staying within Florida, Ron DeSantis is 16 points more popular among Republicans than is Donald Trump. But his lead against Trump among Republicans in a hypothetical head-to-head matchup in a primary is five points. I think there are strong arguments to be made there that that's crazy and that the lead that DeSantis has in a head-to-head matchup against Trump in Florida should broadly match the difference in their approval ratings among the electorate at large and among the same Republicans who are presumably going to be voting in the primary. But it's very difficult to make that case when one of the candidates just says all the polls are wrong. And then if you push them on it, says the election was wrong. (laughs) The election didn't count. It's all made up. So, yeah, there is an important electability argument to be made. We have a lot of signs that the candidates who are likely to run have recently at least done better at getting elected than Donald Trump. But what do you do? when the person who has a liability in that, in that area has turned it in to an asset that potentially, because the Republican primary electorate is feckless and has gone along with this lie, that potentially hurts the person who mm-hmm. points it out. Who could win. Yeah, and who, could, who and would have a better chance of winning. So, MBD, we have another candidate who's getting in the race, Asa Hutchison, former governor, of Arkansas, there's some commentary. I, I, this didn't make any sense to me that <clears throat> that mainstream Republicans felt emboldened by the Trump indictment to, to get in, and this is why Asa was getting in. He he planned on on getting in uh, long before this, but um, probably not um, uh, a strong chance of of getting much traction. Yeah, I mean, it's like it's touching that moderate Republicans still feel that there is some room for them or calling for them in the party to lead the party. Like when uh, Sununu or Hutchinson or Hogan publicly contemplates running for president, I'm very touched. I mean, it's very, it's very nostalgic. It reminds me of, you know, the 1970s or the 1950s. Um, these guys, time has passed them by. I mean, it, it they are fully convinced that the Republican Party is crazy on social issues, right? And that the country has moved to the left, and um, therefore the, so, the Republican so, Party uh, has... Ace, Ace is pro-life, right? He's not like Sununu. Uh, right, but he's... Uh, he was weak on trans. Very weak on trans um, yeah. stuff. 
I mean, Asa went to Bob Jones University. (laughs) Um, But, you know, they fundamentally believe the party, you know, the argument that Asa made about trans issues to Tucker Carlson was that the Republican Party was out of step with America. Um, Mm -hmm. And... And, and, and didn't he say, you know, I've consulted with all the experts, that kind of thing? Yeah, exactly. And um, they, they don't understand that the country moved left and the Republican Party consolidated in opposition to those changes. Um, and so there's not room for them now. Uh, the Republican Party is not ready to go the way of the Tory party and just write off all these issues. Um, so, I, I mean... It, it'll be interest. It'll be interesting to see if he gets any traction whatsoever anywhere at all. Um, you know, uh, he'll have some conservative accomplishments because he's he's the governor of a southern state. Um, you know, the same is true of of um, you know uh, what's his name uh, Huntsman. You know, who's the governor of Utah, and even if he had a moderate personality he ended up having like a pretty he ended up having like a blood red conservative record um but i i don't think yeah. it's going anywhere yeah huntsman it's just that's so many painful memories there oh my <laughs> gosh all right so Noah, extra question to you assuming it's a trump biden race there will be a third party candidate yes, yes or no? there will 100 percent be a a third party candidate. I want to briefly respond to something sure. Charlie said that I thought was really interesting. And, and, and also Hutchison. So Hutchison's came out briefly and said, uh, you know, Trump should drop out because he's under indictment, which if he had any concern for his voters, he would. Um, he also levied a lot of attacks on Ron DeSantis uh, over his Ukraine positioning statement. And all of those are only maneuvers you can do if you really have almost no concern for the Republican base voter. He's not running to win the Republican primary nomination. He's running to make a statement. And good for him. Maybe it's a statement that needs to be made. Um, but if you are in tune to the sentiments of the base, then it would lead you to endorsing Donald Trump. All the sentiments of the base suggest you should endorse Donald Trump. And to Charlie's point about the stolen election narrative and why they go along with it, like here's a spec, and I'm only half joking when I speculate about this hypothetical. What if Donald Trump came out on the debate stage and said, he, so DeSantis has been retailing this attack on on uh on Trump for keeping Fauci around, right? What if Trump were to just say, no, actually, I fired uh, Fauci in April 2020 (laughs) and make a facially compelling argument around it? No, like I wanted to, and then the deep state kept him around. And if you say that, you know, I should have made, then you support the deep state. Yeah, 70%. Does that not become the Republican Party basis position? Right. So I disagree. So here's the thing. I mean, the thing that makes me not doom and gloom about uh, or, or, or think that it's foreordained that Trump is going to win this is precisely that there really is an effect where Trump drove out voters from the party, right? We can see it in 2018, 2020, 2022. And Ron DeSantis really is driving voters into the party. And even among, even some of the ones that Trump drove out, right? People that really cared about the, the COVID response and are going to, respond when respond positively when Ron DeSantis makes that case. Like I, I I think we are, um, I'm against the view of the Republican primary voter as totally irrational. I think a lot of them support Trump, um, have a kind of rationality at work. They may be misinformed. They may be, um, but Michael, if you believe that the point? election was stolen, then it's not compelling for Ron DeSantis to say, I brought people into the party, because Trump did too. Well, if you believe yeah. the election was stolen, but how many people really believe that versus how many people just tell pollsters that to get their goat? Yeah, and I, I think that that is something that people, you know, they, they have naturally naturally have suspicions about it. And, you know, the, the process problems and Twitter suppressing Hunter Biden and social media clearly being biased that they could lead you to, to, you know, call it rigged. It squint just right with some rationality, not that it was stolen, but I, I don't think there's, there'd be any belief that Anthony Fauci was really fired. You know, I think that'd be a bridge, a bridge too far to, for Trump to, to try to 
um, convince people of that. Um, and, and I'm with MBD. I think a lot of the stolen election sentiment, it's somewhere on a spectrum where there are people who still believe, you know, someone changed votes in the voting machines. And there, there are other people who say it to screw the media. And there are other people who just think the, the rules, you know, the, the, playing, the playing field was tilted. Even if there are a lot of people telling that to pollsters just to annoy, vex, and manipulate pollsters, you as a Republican candidate have to look at that poll and say, well, I'm going to ignore that. Mm-hmm. I wonder if, if I, I was thinking the other day, if I were a debate moderator, the first debate, the first question I would ask is uh, Donald Trump denies that he had an affair with Stormy Daniels and uh, paid her off to you uh, and, and paid her off to keep her quiet and then ask whoever, do you believe that? I, I imagine whoever would just say, well, I'm not going get, to get into that. That's too tawdry. Um, <clears throat> but you, you can pin these people down. I, it's, it's awkward for these folks to um call trump out as a as a liar you know <laughs> which is the um and rationally would be part of the case you're making against them but is really hard to make in the, a republican primary anyway with that mbd third party candidate third party candidate will there be one i mean there's always third party candidates um of some significance, like Perot type significance, or like well, yeah, or like, like Nader, um, Nader type. Someone, we, yeah, Nader type. Someone you've heard of? Uh, no, actually, no. It'll be like it'll be like some Chronicles editor running on the Constitution Party. <laughs> like that, it, it'll be for the no labels effort. You don't, you don't think they'll? No, 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 no. I don't think that'll happen. Try. I think probably not, but I'll tell you this much. If the Republican nominee is Donald Trump, a third-party candidate is going to end up substantially helping Trump and hurting Biden and not the other way around. If the nominee is not Trump, I could at the outside see Trump sabotaging the election, probably not by running because of the sore loser laws, but by saying don't vote for whoever the nominee is. If Trump is the nominee, and you're seeing this already, there's a big freak out. Is it in Arizona over no labels? The Democratic Party is suing no labels to stop them running in 2024 because it's worried that it will lead to Kirsten Sinema losing her Senate seat or Ruben Galaygo, if he's the nominee, and Republicans taking the state. Because the potential third-party candidacy would hurt the Democrats, I think the amount of pressure that will be brought to bear across our elite landscape renders it unlikely. I'm going to go with no. I'm going to say yes, there there will be it at, at some level. Does, does Manchin get in? I kind of doubt it, but I think there'll be, there'll be someone with that. Let me do a quick plug for Enterplus Digital Subscription Service at nationalreview.com. Your way round or meter paywall. Your way. If you sign up and log in to see 90% fewer ads, especially the most obnoxious and distracting ads, disappear just like magic. Your way to get deeper into the NR community, comment on articles and blog posts, be invited to exclusive events with our writers, editors, and other conservative figures. A great deal all around. We have First-time offers <clears throat> running at any given moment, and most importantly, it's a crucial way to support our valuable journalism. So if you haven't already signed up, if you have, thank you so much. If you haven't, please join tens of thousands of your fellow National View readers as a member of NR+. So Noah, we had some reporting around the Chinese spy balloon that feels so long ago, like from an entirely different era where we're all freaked out by this balloon and the United States government scrambling the jets every time a little girl let a helium balloon go at a, at a party. Um, but we have NBC News and I guess others saying that this massive balloon, the payload apparently was as, as big as a, a passenger jet, was unsurprisingly like not just uh, accidentally loitering over militarily sensitive sites in the United States. 
it could be uh, maneuvered quite adeptly uh, from China and was sending back real-time uh, signals, uh, data that could pick up information about our personnel and our weapon systems. And for whatever reason, we let it do all that until it was off the coast of South Carolina when we finally took the thing down. If if I were a member of Congress, this would be one of the only things I'd be talking about right now. Um, I'm very disconcerted by, A, this operation by the Chinese, B, how this administration behaved over the course of the last month. It gives us no confidence, zero confidence, that they will be able to handle a crisis. Um, early on, when we first discovered this thing when some intrepid Montana-based reporters looked up and saw this balloon and it was revealed and the administration let go through leaks that they had been aware of this thing for the better part of a week before it had been spotted. Jim Shudo, I'm sorry, over at CNN uh, said, you know, that uh, U.S. officials thought they were able to block some of the intelligence gathering signals from this thing. Um, that's apparently not entirely true, that it was able to complete at least part of its mission in the NBC report that reveals it was able to complete at least part of its mission, it quotes um, def defense officials saying, well, it was limited additional value. And so why shoot it down? I mean, that's just simply not true. The acknowledgement here is that it captures, captures signals intelligence in ways satellites cannot and therefore does produce additional value, limited or otherwise. We're capturing signals over things like our ICBM silos in Montana. And there's still a whole bunch of outstanding questions about this operation. The administration says, well, this happens all the time, right? It happens in five continents. Uh, they're traversing uh, military significant places in the Pacific and a, a bunch of other countries. And indeed, this particular balloon that traversed the United States was simultaneous with another balloon that uh, traversed uh, Central America, giving Chinese a live look at the breadth of America's continental defenses. That's a little weird. And it's something I want to learn a little bit more about. Um, lastly, the Chinese are like, wait a minute, like all these people from Nicaragua are just walking into the United States. <laughs> there's a vulnerability. Or it's undefended. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's, and, and uh, lastly, one, one of the things we learned during this crisis is that the deconfliction mechanisms between Washington and Beijing have atrophied to a point that they barely exist. We can't get each other on the phone in the event of a crisis. That's scary. And that's something that needs to be fixed we'll just, yesterday. We'll just, have to post, we'll just have to post on TikTok. That's like the only way to communicate uh, well, reliably. They're paying Chinese attention government. to that in Beijing. <laughs> but I mean, there's a, there's a whole bunch of things that like, this, is, this whole story has been covered in the press with a lot of flippancy. We turned mm -hmm. the skies over North America into a live fire zone for a week <laughs> for the first time in history. And everybody's just kind of like, well, that was weird, right? Moving on. Let's talk about aliens. This is a real story, and people are treating it like it's real. It's one of the biggest national security breaches for, by a great power in this country in its history. Well, you know, with the exception of the 19th century. Uh, and nobody seems to be treating it like that. It's bizarre. Um, yeah, so, Charlie, go ahead, Amir. I think part of the reason for that is that when you're told balloon, it feels low-tech. Right? right, like it, it doesn't, and kind of, and kind of funny, and and kind of funny, yeah. It doesn't feel like U two spy plane probably felt during the Cold War, which is like, whoa, this was a huge advanced piece of technology that came down, and and literally the thing itself um, showed you how advanced America was uh, com compared to its rivals. This this seemed uh, that's all that's all I wanted to say was that one of the reasons people are treating it as a joke is it seems low tech and strange but the the fact is you know in the history of warfare you're always looking for these asymmetric low tech um upsides in in combat or in intelligence gathering uh you know in order to overcome a high tech opponent um this is exactly the sort of thing you look look to do um, is is go where they're not looking, or go with something that's too small, or moves in a funny way uh, that it's not going to um, breach the way they have their radars set. Um, the Chinese did it; they got away with it, and uh, it is a huge disgrace. I mean, I think the biggest effect of all is just the embarrassment. Um, you know, it's yeah. humiliating. And, and, the, uh, and Charlie, the, the deception level was quite high here from, from beginning to end, as, as No points out. They, 
apparently just weren't going to say anything about this. <laughs> it's just like kind of lounge over the the United States if if people hadn't pointed out this this weird object in the sky that that wasn't the the moon. And then you know they said, oh, it was happening you know during the the Trump years, which is true. It's just no no one was told. And now, and they haven't been honest about the uh, uh, the potential and in, in intelligence uh, riches that the the Chinese gathered. Well, yeah, we don't trust the government, right? Governments lie. It seems to me, perhaps I'm stealing this from someone, possibly Noah, that the Biden administration throughout this was more interested in winning the news cycle each day than dealing with this threat. And if that meant not acknowledging it, fine. If that meant whataboutting it, fine. If that meant downplaying it or using friendly journalists to divert people away from the truth, fine. I'm not sure I would expect much different from the government, but I should. I'm not sure I would expect much different from Joe Biden, but I should. This is... This is why I'm skeptical of government authority. I don't know why anyone would look at this and heed what Noah just said and then turn the page and say, well, I'm sure in every other respect they're telling us the full truth. They're not. They have political incentives as well as strategic incentives. And it seems to me that the political incentives here won out. All right. So, Noah, since you joined National Review, people have been uh, waiting eagerly for a good foreign policy national security throwdown with one notorious MBD. And we're hoping, I'm not sure whether it's going to transpire, but I'm hoping it'll transpire here over uh, Finland joining <laughs> NATO, extending our border of just 800 miles, NATO's border of just 800 miles with uh, Russia. No, nothing, no potential problem with that, right, MBD? Um, doubling our border, our NATO's border with Russia, uh, does have problems. I mean, listen, Finland, Finland's entry into NATO is not on its face ridiculous the way that, say, North Macedonia's entry into NATO is. Or this week, you're never you're never going to get junk it to Northern Macedonia the way you're always uh, well, this, talking smack well, this, about the Northern Macedonians. Well, this week there was a headline in the Irish Times saying that uh, the Taoiseach of Ireland uh, hasn't hasn't ruled out Ireland joining NATO, even though he admits Ireland cannot even provide for its own defense adequately. Well, this this is going to be right? that, that's where Charlie draws the line at NATO expansion, right, Charlie? <laughs> No, but I mean, no, but the idea though that you're gonna like Finland has very a, a serious military. It is a very serious military tradition. It has uh, in its its recent history uh, absolutely outstanding uh, battle record against Russia uh, in World War One. In World War Two, in fact, it was the only country that managed to be on the right side of World War Two at the start of it, which was against both the Nazis and the communists. Um, we couldn't manage that, uh, um, and so it's it's not it's not utterly ridiculous. However, it was also not necessary precisely because of this. Finland was in no danger of falling into serious Russian orbit and becoming a cat's paw of Russia or part of a Russian military alliance with Belarus or anything like that. It existed perfectly fine as a well armed. Uh, and highly capable buffer state, but now its border is also NATO's credibility as well. Um, so anyway, I, I there there is a downside to it, but it is not. I, I don't find it as ridiculous as other forms of NATO expansion, precisely because it does bring something to the table besides Michael, liabilities. What about a deal? We add Finland to NATO, but kick Germany out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean. The, <laughs> Well, to keep Germany down, right? That's the whole point. Yeah, I mean, Germany, listen. They'd be surrounded. There are strategic reasons to, for Germany to be in NATO, um, even if their leopard tanks don't work, apparently, which is, seems to be the case. Um, but yeah, that, so I don't I don't know that this is going to be the, the epic throwdown between 
between me and Noah because yeah, okay, yeah, it, it is a difference of degree. I mean, I'm, I, I, like I said, I don't find this utterly ridiculous, but I don't think it's a huge strategic win. It's it presents one liability while adding some uh, capabilities to the alliance. So, so no, if this is going to be a throwdown, it's all up to you now. I'll be as provocative as possible. <laughs> <All right. laughs> Finnish um, national extremism. <laughs> exactly. It's very, it's, um, it's very good to see uh, Finland ascend to NATO membership. It brings with it some of the largest artillery, armor, and ammunition stockpiles in Europe. It's one of the hardest targets in Europe. It has a very long history of policing its very long border. Um, it is not a security threat. Uh, the Finns don't necessarily share... I believe Michael's assessment of its capacity to defend itself. One of the arguments that Vladimir Putin raised when his with his pre-war conversations with Emmanuel Macron is the prospect of Ukrainian Finlandization. Finlandization is remembered in Finland as a horrible time. It was de facto Warsaw Pact membership, notwithstanding Finland's uh, uh, integration with European economic structures in 1972. Otherwise, the politics of Finland were um, determined in Moscow. And they don't like that. They want to avoid that, which is part of the reason why it's become one of the hardest targets in Europe. To bring it back to, for example, say the North Macedonian example, that's a country that can't provide for its own defense. But as I've written many, many times for National Review and commentary before, um, the pattern of aggression that we see from Moscow is efforts to destabilize these polities before they ascend to NATO membership because they're ripe targets. North Macedonia was subject to a coup attempt as it was attempting to uh, ascend to NATO membership, provocations which subsequently stopped upon its ascension to NATO. Um, it exists as a bulwark against these provocative efforts uh, to such a degree that Russia would risk the prospect of a conflagration, even in states that can't provide for their own defense, which is not what Finland is. So yes, generally supportive of this, supportive of Sweden's ascension, and who knows where this goes from here. There's also talk, I mean, for example, I think I'd be queasy about something like Serbia's ascension to NATO just by virtue of its politics, but then I'd have to make the case against Turkey, and then I'd have to make the case against Germany, and I'm not necessarily prepared to do that either. All right, so clearly we're going to have to have a special uh, North Macedonia episode where we have a total <laughs> throwdown between you guys, so we'll, we'll look forward to that at some point in the future. Charlie Cook, exit question to you. Terrible news. This Wall Street Journal reporter is taken hostage in Russia, arrested on what surely are, are bogus espionage charges. It is your guess we will end up trading a real criminals on par with the arms merchant we sent back for the WNBA player, yes or no? Yes, no doubt. Noah? I don't know. Depends on the value of who we could get. I I'll lean yes, but I'm queasy on it. NBD? I, I don't know. I don't know who else we have. Um... um I don't know who else we have, and, and it's hard, but at the one time, of course, we need, we have a duty to, to rescue our citizen. Uh, we also have a duty to punish Russia for this yet another transgression against uh, norms by kidnapping and holding hostage another citizen. Yeah, the answer is yes. We'll just, yeah. we'll just have to. So with that, let's hit a few other things before we go. MBD, you've been listening to Sam Cook and the Soul Stirrers. Yeah, so um, it's Holy Week for for Christians, and I get a lot of fill at my very traditional Catholic church of, you know, just beautiful sacred polyphony, Thomas Day, Victoria, Thomas Tallis, William Byrd, all of that. But uh, somehow every year on my uh, iPhone... I end up turning to Sam Cooke and the Solsters, a gospel uh, classic from America um, that is absolutely must-listening. Um, people know Sam Cooke's popular music, um, Send Me. Who, 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 is, who is Sam Sam Cooke Cook Cook is one of the great soul singers. So, uh, what is it? She's Only 16, Send Me. Um, let's see, what else did he do? Uh, Tears of a Clown. Um, and a change is going to come where kind of his soul hits. But before that, he was, um, arguably the greatest, uh, male gospel singer, 
that America ever produced. And his collection with the Soul Stirrers, uh, that's very easy to find on Spotify or elsewhere, is um, just incredible, incredibly moving religious music. Awesome. So Noah, a little later in the week, you are getting on a plane to Puerto Rico. Just a little less than 48 hours. Uh, heading down there for the first time since the uh, COVID, actually. my <clears throat> Like the Swallows returned to Capistrano, my wife's family, <laughs> Puerto Rican side, <laughs> makes a trek, sojourn back to the homeland. And we usually join them, and it'll be ni- it's been a while, so it'll be nice to see that side of the family. And my kids could not be more excited. Awesome. So, Charlie, speaking of exciting projects for the kids, or at least for you, You've been working on an 11,000-piece Lego set. Not 11,000. That would be absolutely preposterous. I think it's 1,100. 1,100. Still, many, many pieces. Uh, Courtesy of Jack Fowler, uh, who (laughs) sent it down for the kids. It's Harry Potter-themed Lego set, which I say we, because the kids did a lot of it with me. But I was there for all of the building process. It's a little bit like Sergeant Pepper, where Paul McCartney was there for every single second of the recording session, and the other Beatles were there most of the time, but some of them went in and out. There were a couple moments when my kids uh, walked away. But uh, no, we had a great time building it. It's this big clock tower, and um, it takes a lot longer to build Lego than you think, but they they love it. Playing with it is, I suppose, the point. And uh, they've been playing with it ever since it was finished. So I mentioned last week that uh, I was down at the National Review Institute Idea Summit in Washington, D.C., which was a great success. Uh, stayed over an, an extra day. Came back on Saturday. I'm kind of a train snob. I will, will only um, try to only take the, the Acela. Um, which is pretty ratty in and of itself um, at this at this juncture um, between New York and Washington, but there were none uh, kind of later in the day on Saturday, so I had to take this regional train, and there was this friend from the, the Idea Summit from California, and, and he was on the same train, and he was so excited about it. He's like, I haven't taken a train from Washington in, to New York in, in so long, so I didn't want to fly. I thought this would just, this kind of be sort of romantic, and I was like, I'm telling you, this is like the Greyhound. This this will not be a fun experience. It's like it, it only costs $33. I was like, yeah, <laughs> and you're, you're going to get every penny worth of $33 worth of transportation, and sure enough, this train, it was delayed nearly an hour. You know, there's always something. There's always something in this case you know there were wind and thunderstorms so parts of the track you know the power was was lost and it was just we were just inching along so uh i'm not a, an amari right uh ite on trains charlie i don't think we need to make major investments on in trains to to match the the majesty of uh red china but they they do they do stink they they are Terrible. There's, That's why we no need to make major that. investments in drones to get rid of all of the trains. In <laughs> one fell swoop. There you go. So with that, it's time for our editor's picks. MBD. What's your pick? Uh, my pick is Wilford Riley's piece. California's reparations proposals are a mess. Um, just a review of absolutely radical, wild ideas that California might be trying with its, uh, you know. Germany-like budget. Um, anyway, ch- check out what Wilfred has to say about it. He is so great. I'm so delighted he's writing a regular column for us. And in my mind, he's one of the most fearless and incisive uh, public intellectuals out there. Noah Rothman, what's your pick? Um, the Media's Savior Complex by Beckett Adams. The piece is somewhat premised on a Norm MacDonald joke, where he speculates about the terrifying prospect of an ISIS attack that would kill millions of Americans. And the punchline is, imagine the backlash against peaceful Muslims. And he premises the column on this and then identifies in the press exactly the behavior that McDonald was lampooning, particularly around this shooting in Nashville with the suspect being a transgendered individual who identifies one way or the other, I forget. But like, there's there's like fundraisers now going on for, for trans Americans around this shooting. Can you imagine how the family who lost their children, must feel at this display of outpouring of support tangentially, albeit obviously, for their killer. It's, it's demonic. 
Mm. Well said. Charlie, your pick? My pick's a post from yesterday, well, a piece, I think, actually, by Dan McLaughlin. When a Democratic <sighs> president was that yours? Yeah, that's okay. Go ahead. When a Democratic <laughs> president was above the law, pointing out that whatever you think of this Trump indictment, the line that no president is above the law is somewhat hilarious if your memory takes you back to 1998, at which point the just about sex line was trotted out frequently to defend Bill Clinton. The fact that the case was actually about perjury having been ignored. And I think Dan must have an enormous Library of Alexandria-style repository of historical information because the sheer number of quotes Mm -hmm. from the time that he includes in this is nothing short of remarkable. Yeah, it's unbelievable. So I will go with my default at a time like this, which is Andy McCarthy, who you know is, is writing something nearly every day, uh, full of insight about this Stormy Daniels case and, and everything related to it. We were at the green room at the summit with another legal luminary who was joking, Andy, it, that, that can't be you writing all that stuff, right? You're, you're using chat GPT, which, which you sometimes would think, just given how, how prolific he is. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National U podcast and your rebroadcast, retransmission, or count this game without the express written permission of National U magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shitty, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Noah. Thank you, MBD. Thanks to Ball and Brand Sheets. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.